This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. The State of Status. Welcome back to Ian Pulse. Today, we're going to talk about seizures, the state of status. Sarah, we see seizures all the time. I feel like not a shift goes by that I don't see either a child who has a history of seizures, just had a seizure, or is actively seizing. Yeah, that sounds about right, because approximately 1% to 2% of all emergency department visits are from people coming in with the chief complaint of seizures. And epilepsy is estimated to affect about 7 per 1,000 people, And 1% of the population will experience at least one seizure in their lifetime. I worked last night and literally, Sarah, 20% of my patients fell into one of those buckets, including a child that was in status epilepticus. Yep. So let's define what status is. So status epilepticus is when a seizure continues for more than five minutes. And this is responsible for 50,000 to 150,000 visits per year to the emergency department and carries increased morbidity and mortality when it's present. You know, that very definition of status epilepticus is really interesting to me. Really? How so? Well, the fact that the length of time before calling it status epilepticus is creeping down. When I started training, I believe it was at 30 minutes, and now we're down to only five minutes. I get why, because honestly, if a seizure is going to stop spontaneously, most of them will do so by five minutes. And we really need to act aggressively for those that do not stop. But that means for those of us in the emergency department, if our patient is still seizing when we see them, we have a patient in status epilepticus. And I have a really hard time getting motivated to prepare when I hear that a patient is coming in with a seizure because the vast majority of the time the seizure has stopped before that patient gets there. (laughs) But if they haven't, well, then the game is on. Yeah, that is totally true. I had that exact scenario a few months ago when I took care of a young girl with epilepsy. It was a busy winter shift. So when I heard she was here with seizures, I peeked in, made sure she wasn't seizing and let my resident proceed to get the history. Her wonderful parents shared a little about her with us for our podcast, so I'll let her dad tell you about her. So uh, Layla's 12 years old. She was born uh, with a cerebral palsy, low muscle tone, hypertonia. She didn't have a seizure for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, as she grew older, her seizures started to increase and uh, they started to change the pattern or rather how the seizure would happen. That changed. So this morning, I, I wasn't home, but I got a call from mom who said that Layla's not feeling well and she might have a seizure. Uh, when I went home, I realized that her eyes were really rolling off to her right side, which is one of her signs that she's going to have a seizure. So I saw that and then uh, we okay, realized it looks like she is having a seizure. And we um, gave her a diastat <clears throat> shot and then we um, called 911 and, uh, and they just kept her calm put her off to the side on her bed until the paramedics arrived, uh, explained to them what the situation is. um, And then, you know, then we brought her to the UC Davis hospital. Okay. Layla's dad sounds so stinking calm, right? I do not think I would sound that calm talking about my own child's seizure. And I care for seizing people all the time. Totally. Can you imagine seeing your own child unconscious looking up to the right gurgling, breathing, knowing that every minute of the seizure increases morbidity and mortality? No, and I I don't want to even imagine it. 
But remember, Layla has epilepsy. She has seizures on a semi-regular basis. And honestly, this is not our first rodeo as a team with Layla. I'll let her dad share the next steps of what happened. By its, when, the, when the paramedics arrived, she, the diastat was already um, taking effect. And she was getting more drowsy. And as I was speak, speaking with the paramedics uh, staff, she was already falling asleep. But I, we did explain to her that, you know, she does need to go to the hospital and this is her situation that she, do, she doesn't need to be monitored because it could get worse. And, you know, they, they did some an initial checkups of her and then put her, put, her in her, uh, put her in the EMT and brought her over. What does it feel like to have an ambulance in your house, have your daughter seizing? In a strange way, it is kind of a good feeling when the ambulance is there because of the experience we've had in the past. You definitely feel like you're in good hands. You know, and I do feel like the EMT staff, they, they know exactly what they're doing. So it, it really is a very uh, assuring experience to, okay, now they're in good hands. Layla's dad mentioned that she looked very sleepy, and she did to me as well. But that's fine, because we expect that after a seizure. While I was in the room confirming the history, her heart rate actually jumped up 20 to 30 points, and she went back to looking up and to the right again. She was seizing again, and she had never normalized. My patient was in status epilepticus. Layla was in status epilepticus. Long story short, we gave benzos, more benzos, and ended up loading her with levetiracetam. It was super challenging at times to even know if she was seizing or if she had stopped. She is not neurotypical, and her exam was super challenging. She finally did stop seizing, but I was at bedside monitoring her progress for a long old time. Yeah, and it's so challenging to be a parent and have to go through all of this. And the dad mentioned that as well. Being a parent of a child who has seizures, it's one of those things where you, you, I guess there's a saying you kind of sleep with one eye open, right? Because it could happen at any time. In fact, that had happened once while we were asleep. Yeah, she woke up, tried to walk, and fell down. And we, we woke up from the sound of her falling and then ran to her room and found her face down. And then we have a camera in her room that we watch at nights and things like that. So you do kind of Actually, quite literally, a lot of times you do sleep with one eye open because you're always checking the phone and the camera and every little sound, you're wondering what's going on. And this is why we are talking about seizures today. These moments are stressful for loved ones to watch, stressful for us as providers, and status epilepticus is not good for the brain. In this episode, we talk about a recent United States study from the collaborative called ESET, and PCARN was a part of that collaborative. And that means we personally enrolled patients in this study, so it's super fun to see the results. The paper, titled Randomized Trial of Three Anticonvulsant Medications for Status Epilepticus, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2019. This is the definitive study on second-line treatment for status epilepticus, and we spoke to a few of the experts. And as a guest interviewer, we also patched in a friend of mine and fellow pediatric emergency medicine podcaster, Jason Woods from Little Big Med. Let's let them introduce themselves. My name is Jim Chamberlain, and I'm a professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. And I was the um, pediatric principal investigator for the ESET trial. And I'm Jason Woods. I am an assistant professor of pediatric emergency medicine at the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado. And I'm also a podcaster. I run a podcast called Little Big Med. 
And I worked with Jim when I was a fellow there. Um, and so that's my connection to this. Jim, tell us, why did you start studying status epilepticus? What stirred this question for you? So it started a long time ago, back in the uh, dark ages when I was a fellow. Back in the 1980s, I had several kids with status epilepticus where I couldn't get an IV started. And they had this wonderful new drug called midazolam, which had just been introduced back in the 1980s. And it could be given IM, and it could be rapidly absorbed IM. And so we did a small study of uh, midazolam versus diazepam, which was the standard of care back then, and it worked. You can also use it intranasally, and you can use it buccally. It's a great drug. So I got interested in status back then, and now we still don't know the optimal treatment for status epilepticus, and it's a pretty common pediatric neurologic emergency. If you treat it rapidly and effectively, you can prevent both short-term and long-term complications. So what was the question that you guys wanted to answer in this ESET trial? We were interested in finding the optimal treatment of status for patients who had failed benzodiazepines. So standard treatment was you give two doses of benzodiazepines and then you proceed to phenytoin or phosphenytoin. But we didn't really have good data for phosphenytoin. We knew that phenytoin was about 50% effective, but we were hoping we could find a drug that was more effective. And how did you investigate this problem? Walk us briefly through the methods. Yeah, so this was basically a randomized controlled trial with a bit of a twist. Rather than comparing two drugs, we wanted to compare the three most commonly used agents for status epilepticus, phosphenitoin or FOS, levetiracetam or LEV, and valproate or VAL. Okay, can we just stop here and say thank goodness that Jim shortens levetiracetam to LEV. I really struggle with that word. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> and I think we all do, which is why sometimes during this podcast, we might inadvertently call it Kepra, which is the brand name for levetiracetam, because it is so much easier to say, even though we should be calling it levetiracetam or LEV. Turns out, when you go from a trial of two agents to a trial of three agents, you dramatically increase the need for sample size. So we used Bayesian adaptive randomization to make the study more efficient. This is a variant of play-the-winner randomization in which drugs with a higher likelihood of success early on get more patients randomized to that arm later. So you decrease the final sample size of the study. Do you do that at planned interim analyses? Is this like an ongoing decision where every time somebody's randomized, the data is reanalyzed and then the randomization is changed? Or like, how do you functionally go about adjusting the distribution? So Jason, you could do it that way. We chose to do it in aliquots. The initial analysis was at 300, and then we did it every 100 patients after that. I just want to say talking about Bayesian methods is one small step for our podcast, but one giant leap for research. This approach of using Bayesian statistics is the future of research because it allows us to compare multiple interventions more effectively and save more time, more money, and have more accurate outcomes. That's huge. So what was the age range you chose and what were some of the endpoints of the study? People were eligible from age two up, 
So we had three age groups, children, adults, and older adults. I think our oldest uh, enrollee was 85 years old. We chose an outcome that was clinically based. So you had to be at one hour after receiving the study drug, no longer seizing, and recovering consciousness. So having an improving level of consciousness. And the reason we did that is we wanted to be sure that people weren't having ongoing subclinical status. That happens in up to 20 to 25% of adults. We did not have the ability to do rapid EEG at that time. Turns out that there are now some nice products on the market where you can do rapid EEG in the emergency department. Why did you start at two years old? So we chose not to include children less than two years of age because, first of all, they have different causes of seizures, most often just febrile seizures. There was also concern at the FDA about the use of valproate in this age group because there have been case reports of um, irreversible liver injury with valproate long-term in children with unrecognized genetic mutations associated with developmental delay and seizures. Tell us about the networks you used. Sure. So status epilepticus that is refractory to benzodiazepines, which is where you bring in these second-line agents, only occurs a few times a month, even at large centers. So we needed a large multi-center study to pull this off. The study originated in the Neurologic Emergencies Treatment Trial Network, or NET, and they approached me as a member of PCARN to bring in PCARN centers to uh, enrich the pediatric population. And how many centers did you guys have involved in this? Oh, there was upwards of 60, I think, uh, maybe 82 centers or something like that. And that was across the United States? Yes. Jim, one of the questions that we had was about the age ranges. And, you know, when we see pediatric studies specifically, they're often broken down a little bit more than age two to 17. And we're just wondering what the design thoughts were behind that. And is some of it just because this started from a more adult approach and then the kids were added in later or sort of uh, were there lack of patience? What was the thought behind grouping all of that together? The thought was originally, yes, that this was an adult study, but we felt that the pediatric population was really important and needed to be studied. So we powered the study to have 80% power in children to detect a 15% difference between drugs. We do report in our pediatric paper, which will be coming out in the next couple months, a breakdown by different age groups that's more granular, Jason. Okay. So you'll be able to see that. But it turns out there were no difference between age groups anyway, but it was important to look at that. So tell us, what were the most important results that you found? There's two important results to this study. First, the medications were almost identical in their efficacy. Approximately 47% of patients responded, no matter which drug they received. Second, there were no differences in safety either. We had been concerned that phosphenatoin in particular would have a higher rate of cardiac side effects, but we didn't see it. The caveat here is that safety events were very uncommon, So there was not a lot of power to distinguish between drugs. Why do you think only about half of the patients had cessation of seizures and improvement of consciousness at 60 minutes? So that's the big question, right? Have we simply reached the limits of what we can do? Maybe 70% of patients get better with benzodiazepines 
and then 50% get better with something else, and then the rest fail because they have something horrible going on. I hope not, but it may be that we simply need to be more aggressive up front, go right to a general anesthetic after benzodiazepines fail, and maybe let's not worry about intubation as being such a bad outcome. Or it may be that intubation itself drives the outcome in this study. We included intubation as a failure of efficacy uh, for pragmatic reasons because we did not have EEG and intubation medications are themselves anticonvulsants and they also mask the clinical signs of seizures. So intubation clouds the outcomes. Some physicians are more likely to intubate than other physicians. At least some of our failures were probably caused by intubations in patients who, in fact, had stopped seizing and would recover consciousness if given a bit more time. I've always felt like we intubate too quickly, but after seeing 50% of the patients fail with the second-line treatment and really maybe intubation is what stops them, like you said, that extra um, RSI meds act as AEDs, I'm wondering, are we intubating too early or does that help in the process that's there? Do we need to stop the seizure with a third-line medication? Yeah, so that's a very interesting difference between general EM providers and pediatric emergency medicine providers, I would say in general. My general EM colleagues on this study believe that if you fail benzos and then a second-line agent, you should just get aggressive and intubate and provide general anesthesia, whether it's propofol or uh, a gas or um, high-dose midazolam infusion. And the idea is you really want to be aggressive and knock those seizures down. It seems like in pediatrics in particular, people want to avoid intubation at all costs. We would get emergency unblinding calls for people who had failed a study drug and they needed to know the name of the drug because they wanted to give another drug because the patient was still seizing and they didn't want to intubate. They wanted to try to preserve the uh, airway but stop the seizures. But at this point, you're out to 30 or 40 minutes and it's time to get aggressive. So I think I agree with you that people are a little too hesitant to intubate, particularly in the pediatric age group. Jim, you said that the medications were fairly safe overall, that there was rarely any events. Talk to us about what kind of adverse outcomes you did see and who were they in? We were pleasantly surprised to see very low rates of adverse events. Hypotension occurred in 1% to 3%, and there were no significant dysrhythmias. Respiratory depression was the most common adverse event, occurring in about 20% of patients. We know from the 2001 placebo-controlled study of pre-hospital seizure treatment that respiratory depression is the result of the seizures itself more than the medications. So, Jim, where do we go from here? Does this answer the question, or do we need more research on this topic? Are we done? Is this it? Well, there's a couple important questions that we still need to answer. The first, of course, is 50% the best we can do after benzos fail. Is this drug failure or simply that some patients have really bad pathophysiology and are not going to stop no matter what we give them? I think we can probably improve on this with other medications or combinations. Second, I think any future study should use EEG criteria to determine success. Some failures occurred because the patient stopped seizing clinically 
but didn't quite wake up at one hour, we couldn't tell if this was subclinical status, so we counted that as a failure. Likely, if we had EEG, many of those had stopped seizing and just hadn't woken up yet. And then I already mentioned the issue of intubation, clouding the outcome. I think in future studies, we're going to have to think about something like the DOOR methodology, where we consider the optimal outcome, stopping seizures and not intubation, but a pretty good outcome is stopping the seizures and requiring intubation. And then a bad outcome, of course, would be not stopping the seizures and having to intubate. Is there anything else you want to add, anything we've missed? Any final thoughts? So I guess I would just urge the podcast listeners to strongly consider their own practice. Our best information from animal studies and emerging from human studies is that the time to irreversible neuronal injury is about 30 minutes of generalized status. So remember that your brain is metabolizing about seven times faster than normal at a time when you're not ventilating very well and your muscles are doing their best to steal all your blood flow. So you have profound metabolic and respiratory acidosis. You've got all sorts of inflammatory mediators being released in your brain. So don't be afraid to step up therapy quickly. Two adequate doses of uh, benzodiazepines, hopefully one already administered in the ambulance, then on to one of these three medications in the next five minutes. If they don't stop seizing after that, you're probably already out to 30 minutes, and I would not hesitate to get more aggressive with a general anesthetic, midazolam infusion, propofol, or ketamine, something like that. What is your thought on ketamine for seizures? So it's interesting that you ask because we are planning the next study, and we want to study ketamine as an additive medication. So would LEV plus ketamine be better than LEV alone? Or would ketamine plus midazolam in the pre-hospital space, would that be better than just uh, midazolam alone? A little vitamin K for everybody. That's right. I'm looking <laughs> forward to those results. <laughs> just reinforcing the, the stereotype that ketamine's every emergency doctor's favorite That's right. Yep. That's true. It's true <laughs> totally for me. True. <laughs> well, in terms of emergency medications with very good safety profiles, ketamine is right up there. And it's a good anticonvulsant. We also spoke with our own Dr. Daniel Nishijima at UC Davis, who is a general emergency medicine physician and was our site co-PI. He had really similar thoughts on the study results, but had an interesting perspective because he takes care of both kids and adults. I noticed with this study, there's a really broad age range. Can emergency medicine providers use these results across the whole spectrum, or is it more nuanced than that? I think it was great to have the opportunity to study this across the age spectrum. Also highlights the amazing collaboration between two very large uh, emergency medicine networks. You know, NET, now SIREN for the adult side, and then PCARN for the pediatric side work together to, to make this trial successful. You know, the results are consistent for both uh, the kids as well as the adults. Uh, you know, I think any of these three medications would be okay to use as second-line agents. Um, and again, moving aggressively forward, you know, if the seizure continues to go on to your third-line agents. 
I think that's really exciting, right? For those that take care of the spectrum of age to have it simplified and not have to remember what's your cutoff age for what medication. There's some beauty in that simplicity. Right. And for me personally, it's easier to just choose, you know, have one agent that I feel comfortable with using as the second line agent. And I think based on these these trials, for me, Keppra seems like the obvious choice. Um, and I think the other surprising thing was the rather large dose of Keppra that was used. Um, in this trial, it was uh, 60 milligrams per kilogram, up to 4.5 grams. Um, in the other two pediatric trials, they used 40 milligrams per kilogram. So I think for me, the, my go-to would be, you know, Keppra. I would, I would sort of pick the middle and go 50 milligrams per kilogram. And I think it's pretty easy, you know. And I think, and I think the reason for Keppra is I think you just have to sort of assume that you're not going to stop the seizure any better with Keppra versus phosphenatoin versus valproic acid. But I think Keppra has a really nice safety profile compared to the other two. I think, you know, concerns about, you know, hypotension with phosphenatoin I think that's something we all sort of worry about, particularly as we, you know, in the adult population, you know, anybody with sort of any cardiopulmonary disease, I think that's definitely something that uh, you're concerned about. So um, I think to me, it just seems like the logical choice, again, would be Kepro. So walk me through. You've stood over our shoulders and watched a lot of seizures while you enrolled patients. Walk me through what is your pathway when you have a seizing patient in front of you? What do you do? I think one of the key things that we learned from this trial, um, and we saw this kind of early on in the trial nationally, um, was just benzodiazepines were probably underdosed. So I think I think being aggressive with your benzodiazepines and allowing it some time to sort of work. You know, you load the patient with benzodiazepines, the patient continues to seizure, you're moving aggressively forward to your second line agents. And almost sort of at the same time you're giving you're giving second line agents and if they're continuing to seize, you're really thinking about the next steps, which is, again, intubation and then using other third-line agents like phenobarbital, propofol, ketamine, and really aggressively trying to, trying to stop the seizures. One of the big things that we sort of saw in the trial is the number of patients, you know, intubated somewhat prematurely. And so um, I think it's okay to watch and wait and see as long as, again, that they stop their seizure. If they are still seizing, be aggressive, you know, um, intubate, and then move on to your third-line agents. So if you have a, let's say, a 20-year-old comes in, seizing, EMS has already given one benzo, or let's say they've given two benzos Mm -hmm. in the field, what do you do when they arrive? I would strongly consider giving another benzodiazepine, you know, as long as they're, you know, protecting their airway. But if they're still seizing, I will, I'll give them another benzodiazepine dose and then move on quickly to the second line agent. So I would do Keppra at 50 milligrams per kilogram. We start preparing it um, rather quickly um, and then giving it some time to work and sort of see. And if the patient continues to seize, you know, say for another 10, 15 minutes, I would strongly think about intubating the patient and then moving on to phenobarbital and propofol. Did anything surprise you during this study? I think the the low rates of success, right? I mean, I think none of us sort of expected, you know, only 40% or roughly a little less than half of the kids are going to still be seizing at 60 minutes. That was definitely surprising. Um, and again, that just highlights the need to like really sort of be aggressive. The other thing that was surprising was that uh, I think there was a 10% pseudo seizure rate. It's difficult to tell if the patient has pseudo seizures or are actually seizing. And so... You know, I mean, I think aggressively treating these patients as well, too. 
you just have to understand that this is just part of, you know, the disease and you have to accept some sort of false positive rate. You know, what really blows my mind about this is to think that there is basically a less than 50% chance of stopping status epilepticus with any of our go-to second-line medications. One thing that I took away from this as a PEM doc is that I really need to be more aggressive. I have to confess, I was one of those doctors that called for the emergency unblinding because I wanted to give another medication and not intubate. So I think this was really important for me to dive into. I am going to be much more aggressive moving forward personally, and I think I'm going to give my second line agent even earlier than I was before. Yeah, and I think that this study is likely to be the last that we're going to see of these types comparing the current second-line medications because there were two other recent large randomized controlled trials in children in the UK and in Australia and New Zealand that compared second-line agents in children, and they also showed no difference. I think Jim was right. We have reached the limits of what we can do with these agents, Sarah. It's time to rethink our algorithm. We have to look to a different pathway because time is brain. Sarah, what is your personal thoughts on ketamine for seizures? So I love the idea. In our ER, I can only use ketamine as a sedation medication at the moment, but I think it has a lot of potential. Yeah, I used it on my last shift when I was intubating for status epilepticus, and I love me a little vitamin K in my life. (laughs) But I haven't used it outside of intubation either. But the thought process is that benzos and some of our other anti-epileptic medications act on our GABA receptors. But those same little GABA receptors actually get internalized during prolonged seizures, which may explain why our benzos and our other medications don't work as well to control seizures when they're lasting for a long time. We need something different. Right. And that's where ketamine can come in because it actually works on the NMDA receptor to control seizures, a totally different mechanism. It hasn't been well studied now, but we all know and love ketamine for its side effect profile. So I would personally really love to see some studies using ketamine in conjunction with second line agents or maybe even in the field since our medics are using ketamine now for other purposes already. Yes. And the other piece I really want to see is a better way to quickly and accurately know when a seizure is done. I love the idea of having a point-of-care EEG to better know where I am in the process. That would have saved me a lot of time with Layla. And this does not feel like a field too far. We need this as soon as possible. Yeah, this definitely needs to be addressed because of patients like Layla. We should not have to struggle so much to know if she is seizing, and loved ones like her shouldn't have to watch their child's body contorting and knowing that time is brain. Pulse check. Bottom line, for status epilepticus, you can use levetiracetam, phosphonatoin, or valproate, dealer's choice, but none of them works very well. So it all works, nothing works. Guys, let's find a better plan. What are you using to stop seizures? Let us know and follow along with us on social media at Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. Register now for the 43rd annual UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference. It's going on February 24 to 29 at the Ritz-Carlton at Lake Tahoe. Thank you to our department for taking care of patients like Layla. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for dealing with all the squiggly lines that make our podcast sound so great. 
And thank you to our listeners. We love learning with you. So if you love learning with us, please go on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people. See y'all next time.